Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise, and we're going to be talking about one of Lou's favorite subjects today, the tariffs and trade wars going on. Lou, how are you? Well, I'm uh, I'm broadcasting the show today on the fourth floor so that when it really gets bad, I'm going to do a six-and-a-half gainer at the window because of the tariffs. Uh, uh, this has well, uh, just become such uh, – you started me. you got to listen to the whole rank. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. I'm only kidding. Uh, that's great. Uh, we have enjoyed Lou ranting on this subject. You'll hear a little of it during the show, but we have a real expert on the show today, Rosemary Coates. She has been on the show uh, recently, and she's executive director of the Reshoring Institute, which is a collaboration with six universities across America. And she's also president of Blue Six. I'm sorry, Blue Silk Consulting, which is a go a global supply chain consultancy. And in her spare time, she writes books. She's got five of them with Amazon.com, and she's a best-selling author. So, Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you. That's right. Lots of <clears throat> lots of spare time, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I almost don't know where to start. I'm sure Lou does. <laughs> and, I don't know if I can even include the two of you in the conversation. I just keep going. <laughs> well, oh, I don't know. I have a lot to say. <laughs> okay, well, so, I, I do I do know that you are passionate about bringing manufacturing back to America. So why don't you start with that point, and then we'll argue it out later. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I've been in um, global trade, global supply chain for about 30 years. <clears throat> and, in fact, I started um, doing global business when I was still in college. I worked for a freight forwarder and customs house broker in the Phoenix um, while I was at Arizona State in the undergrad. And uh, as a result of that experience, I became a licensed customs broker um, and have been doing import-export stuff for a very long time. So in addition to global manufacturing, I always get – caught up in the trade um, compliance part of uh, what my clients are doing. And uh, right now, it's, uh, as, as you know, <clears throat> is a very, very turbulent environment um, and causing a lot of uh, strategic rethinking of manufacturing. So with respect to reshoring, um, you know, there are a lot of considerations right now for being able to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. or at least evaluating the economic possibilities. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on out there, a lot of executives that are considering it or trying to determine if the part of what they're doing could be manufactured in the U.S. and, and so forth, so a lot of different directions. It seems, it, it seems as though that uh, one of the things that I have a, a real problem with, uh, and I, I'm going to jump right into the tariff thing, uh, what I really have a problem with, a uh, severe problem, is that the American public is being um, 
uh, hoodwinked. Uh, there it is. I said it. Uh, we're being hoodwinked into believing that uh, in the case of China, that China is paying us a fortune, something like $60 billion in the first quarter of the year. In truth, it was $60 billion taken out of our economy from the pockets of all American citizens. So uh, by the end of the year, it's going to be a quarter of a trillion. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's horrible, and it may wind up being the precursor for a uh, recession. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, I think um, a lot of the population doesn't understand that tariffs are being paid by us, um, but I think businesses in general do understand that. And from my clients' perspective, the people I work with, uh, you know, people are trying to devise a strategy to deal with the tariffs because they understand that they are um, paying more for imported products and, and for um, parts that are coming into the U.S. for sure. So, yeah, I think, you know, part of the uneducated population that doesn't understand the economics of it may think that way, but uh, I think businesses are, are pretty aware at this point that it's uh, that we're suffering as a result. Um, I heard an interesting thing yesterday, too. I attended a, a conference here in Silicon Valley where I live, and they were talking about how the Chinese are dealing with the tariffs. So, you know, in retaliation for the tariffs that the Trump administration has put on U.S. on the U.S. imports, the Chinese, of course, have their own tariffs. So now they're applying tariffs to things like soybeans and a lot of agricultural products and other products that are really hurting American exporters. Uh, however, <laughs> while they've increased the tariffs on U.S. imports into China, uh, they have also decreased the tariffs on uh, imports from other countries. And the example that was given was lobster. So it used to be we had many lobster fishermen, fishermen along particularly the East Coast in the Boston area that were exporting uh, a lot of their catch to China. And because of the tariffs, the market has essentially dried up. They're not, they're not able to export to China anymore. It's just too expensive. However, China has significantly lowered uh, the tariff rates on Canadian imports. So the Canadian fishermen are going wild. Um, and, in fact, Chinese citizens are, are paying less for their products. So this is this is a little bit different way of looking at it. Here we are bearing the burden of imports into the United States, paying more as citizens, when the Chinese um, are basically not suffering at all for uh, the change in strategy to their imports. Well, another another point is that during this period, companies are reconfiguring their supply chain. Uh, programs and once they get new suppliers in different parts of the world they're not going to be going back to the old suppliers so that's right for example now for example the soybeans you know they've cut out they're not going to buy soybeans from us well they're going to wind up buying soybeans from brazil lord knows right. brazil could use a shot in the arm but we're going to be definitely hurt for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I had mentioned at the beginning is that there's all this turbulence. So there's rethinking your supply chain. It's not just simply sitting back and absorbing 
the cost of import tariffs. Um, it has caused global supply chains to be turbulent, and that's a great example. Um, you know, our, our poor soybean farmers and chickpea farmers, um, you know, where we were, where they had primary markets in China, those are, are gone. So the Chinese have started sourcing uh, from other countries, and they're, they're never going to recover that marketplace. So even though um, they may be paid subsidies, they're never going to recover those customers in, in China. The China Chinese have decided to source someplace else. So you know you're right. It's really changed global patterns significantly. One of the things that I only picked up on recently because it's kind of been uh, in the shadows, and that's the China's Belt and Road, which is the old Silk the China Silk Road. And there's, uh, I think, presently 68 nations that are included in that that are tied to China. And uh, there's very little cost to China. For example, they built one of the largest seaports uh, in China as part of the the Belt and Road. And uh, I saw a film news clip on it, and there was – a port, there were ships, there were cranes, and there were no people. All the cranes were being operated by robots. And uh, so they have a very low cost. Um, the company countries that are involved with their Belt and Road are also paying for a portion of the construction of this uh, Silk Road, or the new Silk Road. And uh, we're sort of left out there. We're we're going to be yeah. hurting for certain on this one. Yeah. So the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, to connect, of course, um, trading partners with China. But China is also strategically selected countries where um, where they can help build infrastructure, and in return, they get rights to minerals and the ability to trade uh, over a period of time that that is part of the contract. So. Um, right. you know, they essentially can exclude other countries from mining minerals and that sort of thing. So I had a, uh, a recent experience. We were on vacation, went to Machu Picchu uh, in Peru, and we're going through the, the Sacred Valley, which is the, the way to get to Machu Picchu. And there were all these Chinese restaurants. And so I said <laughs> to the guide, what the heck, you know, we're in Peru. Why would there be all these Chinese restaurants? And he said there were so many Chinese workers that had come to develop mining in this area in Peru uh, that the, they set up Chinese restaurants to um, to help, you know, to feed the people. Uh, and that, that was very shocking to me. But, you know, there are so many minerals and mining uh, abilities there an investment now by the Chinese government that will be, you know, a forever link between China and Peru. Those kind of examples, mm-hmm. the same thing is happening throughout um, Africa and the Belt and Road Initiative. Right. It's a very long-term strategic thought, you know, a strategy by China um, to connect the world to China, um, as very much it was, it was back in the, in, in the 12th and 13th century. There's a book, I believe it's called China, the 100-Year Strategy. And what they started to put together 100 years ago, 
they're still doing now and growing, and we keep on losing along that path. And it's really quite frightening because uh, we don't have uh, an, an administration that really is keyed into uh, what needs to be done to protect our economy, no matter how strong yeah, they think it is. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's partly it's cultural. I mean, we're we're Americans. We have kind of short-term thinking. You know, we're worried about the stock market and the price of goods and so forth. And Chinese are um, much more long-term thinkers, for sure. I think this is sure. a key a key issue in the trade war as well. Um, so having done business in China for about 20 years, I can tell you that there is um, there is this idea um, that because of the Chinese history, they can pretty much outweigh anybody. Um, and they, they call this eating bitterness. Um, it's a famous phrase, and it just means, you know, they can eat the bad news and wait it out. Uh, and you can see that over over time in history in China, this has happened over and over and over again. They they did this during the Cultural Revolution, um, during the Long March, and even now you hear references to the Long March, which of course was Mao's march across China with 800,000 people, and it was a you know it was a, a terrible long march, and people starved and so forth. But uh, it's this idea that they can endure. And you can see that's what's happening in the trade wars as well. Even though, you know, we, we say there are negotiating sessions going back and forth, so you can just see this, the Chinese are sitting back going, we'll wait it out. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. I think we have, to, we have to, as businesses, respond in a way that, that is strategic and gives us some alternatives rather than hoping that we're going to end the trade war anytime soon. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, I thought I heard yesterday that uh, our present leader uh, in the White House stated that he may wind up keeping the uh, tariffs on uh, indefinitely. Yeah, I, I, I think know. that's that's well. You, you never know. I mean, it's hard to depend on right. on what is said, but. But I think, yeah, I mean, we're sort of in it for the long term and without sort of thinking through what damage is being done to the U.S. economy as a result. And I think on the export mm -hmm. side in particular, it's a real problem. I mean, we have damaged not only a lot of industries, but our real, our relationships with China. Um, you know, it used to be I'd go there um, for a, a client or we'd set up a new manufacturing site or something in the the Chinese people were so welcoming and hardworking and how do we get this done and so forth. Now there's a lot of anti-American sentiment and um, less, less, you know, favorability in terms of assisting with business in, in China. Well, the other thing I, the other thing I, yeah, the other thing I wanted to say too is that, you know, the tariffs, while they're certainly causing Americans to pay more and American businesses to pay more, it's also sort of striking to me that the the issues we're trying to solve with China are a trade imbalance, are um, IP theft, are um, uh, you know currency manipulation, uh, human resource, uh, human uh, um, problems, you know, with uh, with issues with human rights, <clears throat> and 
it's sort of a non sequitur. I mean, how do tariffs on American businesses, which is what they are, they're China tariffs, but they're Americans paying for it. How does how does that address these issues? <laughs> I mean, it, it's like they're they're not solving the problem. Um, so there's no way that just tariffs are going to solve that problem. Uh, uh, and just there, it just is a non sequitur. It just misses the point altogether. Well, I think that the 11, I think it is, 11 tariff set, uh, events that we've had in our history, none of them have proven to be successful. So I can't see yeah. how this one would be viewed to be successful. Yep, we're repeating history. So as, as you know, I'm sure the Smoot Holly Act, <laughs> which was at the very beginning of uh, the uh, the Great Depression, uh, was a tariff on imports and caused any economist will tell you it caused uh, a deepening of that uh, depression and it caused worldwide uh, depressions. Uh, as a spinoff from that. So, you know, we know that. We we can see over time the economics of it just, just don't work. Now, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do something about China. I'm, you know, right. really there's been so much damage that's been done over time, but I, I just can't see how tariffs are going to address any of those issues. Considering that it's never been successful in the past. Right. You know, I, I have we, – we talk we talk to a lot of economists uh, on our show uh, every month, and, you know, they're saying, you know, the economy is strong. It's not growing as fast, but it is still growing. Uh, however, uh, Europe is having troubles. South America uh-huh. is having troubles. Africa – no one even counts Africa. China is having problems. So my question that I always ask the economists is, how how does the American economy stay strong and growing when 175 nations around the world are beginning to go backwards? And it can't work. Yes. Well, you know, and here's another thing. It, It can't go on forever. It doesn't matter who's in office or Republican or Democrat or, you know, what's happening the market is cyclical. So it grows for a while and then you have a recession or a pullback. So it's sort of naturally going to happen. It's just when it will happen. And and you're right, we're starting to see a lot of weakness around the world. Um, You know, the the Chinese economy has contracted a little bit, not not horrendously, but a little bit. Um, Germany's had two two quarters of, of retraction in their manufacturing sector, and that's a that's a that's a dangerous in, uh, indicator, you know. So, you know, there are indicators like that around the world that um, are sort of red flags that we're about ready to take down. Well, it uh, it certainly is a, a problem that is not really being handled, uh, uh, and we we deal with many manufacturers. Uh, here in the United States, uh, my my primary uh, business is uh, All Metals and Forge uh, Group Company, and uh, we talk to a lot of manufacturers, and uh, they're all uh, they're, they're, the confidence level is uh, a little concerning at this point. 
Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's another another issue that is um, a little bit more complex and maybe not so much in the forefront. But steel manufacturing, of course, um, you know, those were the first 232 tariffs that were applied before the Chinese 301 tariffs. Um, and right. they addressed the steel and aluminum imports around the world. And so and here's another aspect that I think wasn't considered, and that's that China has overcapacity in steel production. And so as we place tariffs on the import of steel from all kinds of countries, including China, um, China lowered the price and started selling at cheaper prices in the world market. Um, so, you know, we have a tendency to think that we that America only trades with China or China only trades with America, but in fact they've developed markets all over the world, and so they're putting cheap steel out there and people are buying it, which means that U.S. steel manufacturers eventually are going to lose that market share. Now, right now we know that um, steel manufacturers in the U.S. are kind of at capacity. In fact, I have a a client who um, uses steel manufactured parts and was sourcing them from China, and we help them with their top 20 parts to try to find manufacturers in the U.S. And um, out of uh, 21 parts we looked at, um, we found four uh, potential suppliers in the U.S. who could make the part for relatively the same price as they could source from China. The other 16 were much more expensive. And then out of those four, uh, no one had capacity right now. So even though they quoted and mm. said, yeah, you know, we can make this part, but we're booked for the next 18 months. So it puts, you know, puts sourcing um, of products that are related to um, world trade or world sourcing in a very precarious position. I mean, now you're stuck trying to find parts that you need in countries where we've got tariffs applied and so forth. Um, and even Vietnam, you know, that so uh, the U.S. was in a position to help Vietnam, I think, over the past 10 years or so, uh, develop out of a, a very impoverished, impoverished kind of economy. Um, but now there are penalty tariffs, so countervailing duty and anti-dumping duties that are placed on uh, steel imports from Vietnam that are up to 400%. So... You know that, and that, that, that also that's, includes that also includes Korea. Yeah, Korea also, as well. And, so Korea's been right. yeah big steel and shipbuilding economy for a while, and we've supported that. And so of course that's gonna that's gonna put a dent in what's purchased from Korea as well. So I'm uh, Rosemary, and you're right about by the way the impact of Chinese uh, steel cheap. Chinese steel on the world market because the U.S. used to be the go-to source for steel, and it's also a cheap Chinese aluminum on the world market. Um, they're uh, probably uh, right now producing over 50% of the world total for aluminum, and they're equally high up for the world total of steel. And so China is looking at this uh, as an independent country of their own, and they're going to do the world their way. So how does American business adapt? What are you advising your clients, Rosemary, on what to do for the foreseeable future in terms of 
sourcing and supply chain? Yeah, so there are a number of strategies that we're recommending. Um, you know, first of all, every single business out there that's doing imports or is involved in this in, in global trade in any way needs to have um, plan A and plan B and plan C. And by that I mean uh, they need to know that there are other sources around the world, so developing potential suppliers, not just in China, but in other parts of the world, um, and understand that they could start sourcing or will start sourcing from some of those other alternatives. And then, um, you know, Plan C, which may be develop new manufacturing in a different – in the U.S., hopefully, or a, a different country that's potentially, you know, safer, like uh, Canada, for example. Even Mexico, you know, there was a lot of saber rattling regarding the, the what's happening at the border and that we might put tariffs on Mexico to punish them, which just freaked out an awful lot of businesses because there's so much cross-border trade going on and manufacturing in Mexico for parts that are then shipped to the U.S. So, um, you know, looking at those, assessing the risk uh, in a in a very objective way, and having alternate plans that you could execute if you need to. And and this is key. I mean, I, I think an awful lot of businesses just haven't thought through uh, their what-if scenarios and developed alternatives that are really viable. So the strategic planning starts taking a top position in an executive's uh, agenda uh, in order to protect your business long-term because um, it, it's just – too volatile, it's too turbulent, you just don't know what to expect next. Maybe we should let uh, Russia spend $200, $200 million and open up an aluminum mill in Mitch McConnell's Kentucky. state of Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's, that's an interesting – Yes, it's an interesting approach, and I think um, Kentucky's in a, a quandary because they certainly want to put people back to work, and um, you know the economy needs a, a boost um, of this sort. But you know it also means there are strings attached, and in this case, it's it's uh, Russian investors. Well, well, not only that, I think that that particular mill will only be hiring something like four or five hundred people. So it, it's not like it's a windfall. Right. Yeah, it's, and you can see the strategy. Yeah, when, when businesses are controlled by a foreign entity, whether it's Russia or China or anyone else that's, uh, that's investing in the U.S., it, you know, it's, it's cause for concern or pause at least to understand what that means and how dependent we are on those industries as well. Tim? So, Marianne, you're in a at the – the core of this reshoring, the reshoring institute, and we have heard a lot about reshoring, and, and I've heard uh, you know it going both ways, so that it almost sounds like a zero-sum game. But in reality, is reshoring happening? Are jobs coming back to America in any great degree? I think um, so. Yes, and the answer to that is is yes. There are jobs coming back, and there are um, new plants being built, and, and people thinking about uh, the potential <clears throat> opportunity for uh, bringing manufacturing back here. But you know, it's really dependent on the cost model, 
and can you extract costs from from your operation and that means automation and more advanced manufacturing those are the the kind of jobs we really want to come back but i think you know what i see is not not simply uh, uh you know do i manufacture in china or do i manufacture in the us it, it's more more like uh, executives have learned to um, strategically think about where in the world should they be manufacturing. So with respect to reshoring, we would love to have uh, jobs and manufacturing come back to America, but we don't want all of the jobs. For example, we don't want the you know super low-wage making T-shirt kind of assembly jobs um, back in the U.S. because they don't pay a living wage. And if, if we can't pay a living wage to people – um, then we have to supplement their income with welfare, and that's not what we want. What we want to come back are um, more more skillful, um, higher-level jobs, um, such as, uh, you know, instead of doing the manufacturing, you want people to, uh, new jobs to be running the robot that's doing the manufacturing. So these are more skillful jobs, they require more training, and they pay better. Um, that's what we want to come back. The other kind of jobs that are labor-intensive and um, require low skills and so forth, those belong in areas of the world where there are unskilled workers, like Bangladesh, for example, um, where you know it can pay those jobs pay a living wage for Bangladesh. Um, so right. you know it's really rethinking the strategy of your, the global economy. So putting the right kind of manufacturing in the right country, including the advanced manufacturing, we want to come back to America. Considering, excuse me, considering that we have a shortfall in employment here in this country, where 10,000 people a day are retiring or dying, and only 4,000 people entering the workforce on a day-to-day -day basis, wouldn't it make sense for us to do things like maybe address the immigration problem and train people who are coming to this country to help fill in on the types of jobs that you were just talking about? Because eventually, I think, what is it, 10 million jobs are going to be available uh, that are going to be open in the next five or six years? Yep, with with no with no one to replace these people. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, so so this is what I was talking about. That we need to we're solving the wrong problem. So you know, simply bringing <laughs> jobs back. <laughs> you know, once again, it's a myth and it's kind of a a PR strategy instead of a really trying to solve the problem. So um, you know, we we need to solve the problem of skills. It's not that we don't have people, especially you know, low-skilled people that have been out of work for a long time. It's that we need to retrain them so that they can step up, take a better job that requires more skills, and um, you know, this is the way we build a, a hardier, more robust economy, not, not by just trying to put unskilled labor to work. Um, so you know, I think solving the problem of upskilling um, of looking for industries where it requires more training and pays better, so the jobs pay better. Um, that's the approach that we should be aiming for, not just you know saying, well, we got to put some more more people to work. It, it's the it's the coal mining issue. Um, you know, 
to say that we're going to put coal miners back to work is really a fallacy. I mean, coal mining has <laughs> been automated for 20 years, and pick and shovel coal miners, just there are no jobs like that anymore. You're not going to put those people back to work. You need to retrain them so they can operate the machinery that's actually mining the coal. So, you know, it's it's thinking about things in a more sophisticated way. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't always translate to the our politicians' messages. Um, so, you know, there's um, a kind of messaging part of it, and then there's the real problem and how do you solve the real problem. I think you should run for president. <laughs> <laughs> Plans for A, B, and C. I get it. Yeah, you clearly did hit one nail on the head, uh, Rosemary, and that is the available labor pool that we have in the United States is another 60 or 70 million greater than the employed labor pool that we have in the United States. We're talking about an unemployment rate of 3.7%, but if you lumped in all of the people who are in the available labor pool, that number would be much higher. So you're right. Upskilling is really the right problem to be solving. I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think, you know, it's just uh, what we hear in the media and from our politicians is uh, leads us in the wrong direction very often. I mean, you really have to think through some of these things and, and understand what problem we're trying to solve and then, clear pathways for that or alternate pathways for that as I said before I'm always in favor when I'm out there consulting I'm always in favor of um, uh, helping my clients understand they need alternates they can't just say this is the pathway and we're going forward you need to say here's the pathway that we want to be on but if things happen or there's risk or whatever we need uh, to be able to turn right or turn left um, in order to you know achieve our goals uh, ultimately. Correct. Correct. There's, uh, there's just... one other thing. There's one other thing that you had said before that um, that I wanted to touch on also. So another risk. I'm sorry to be such a downer today, <laughs> but I see a lot of risk out there <laughs> right now. Um, one other thing is the the whole rare earth um, issue. So Ooh, uh, yes. know big one. Yeah, and I've got a couple clients that are wrestling with this right now. But um, as you probably know, rare earths are found all over the world. It's not that they're that rare. It's just that they're not found in, in quantities that are mineable. So um, it's really hard to extract rare earths um, from the earth. Uh, and the mining of it, it is very polluting. So there are a few um, mines around, but there's so much pollution that's associated with it. It's it's really hard to get countries to to step up and do any kind of real mining. We we do have a couple mines in the U.S., um, but they're pretty small by comparison uh, in terms of the need. So most of the big mines are in China, and they've learned to um, uh, to mine these goods, and for somehow they look the other way when it comes to the pollution. But they really are captive of that marketplace, and we are dependent. So um, where earths are used in, in batteries and electronics and um, magnets and industrial products that go into other uh, industrial products, and they are essential. 
We really can't do without them. And so that's an area we need to keep an eye on and make sure that we're, you know, not shooting ourselves in the foot with tariffs. And China says, fine, you know, you don't want to negotiate. We're not going to sell you anywhere, Earth. And that's a that's going to that's a big problem. That is a huge threat, and it's something that I've been thinking about now for quite some time, because we'll be really in deep, deep trouble if China wants to use that as a blackmail barter uh, uh, tool. So I'm glad you brought that up. I I do as well, but I. I'm already depressed today, so I didn't want to bring that one up. (laughs) (laughs) It is depressing and scary. It certainly is. It it is. We're going to have to get smarter faster, particularly about how we mine rare earths, because China did a better job of mining it only because they can probably be less clean about it than we can in the United States. We have a lot of people watching us from the EPA and from the general population to make sure that what we do is clean and green, and that's actually a good thing for planet Earth and certainly for us. But more importantly, Rosemary, we appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio, and I'm just going to jump in here real quickly with your website address, which is reshoringinstitute.org. We would encourage all of our listeners to go there and check out your website. You are a prolific writer. You have dozens of documents that you have written, and we certainly encourage people to go through those and get a hold of you if they want more information and their challenge with their supply chain or other issues involving the trade war. Rosemary Coates is uh, part of your solution, and you really need to be aware of it. Rosemary, thank you for being on the show. Sure, thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well. We'll be talking again. Anytime anything new comes up, let us know, and we'd love to have you back. And we've been talking with Rosemary Coates, who is the executive director of the Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. Again, her website is reshoringinstitute.org. Please go there for more information. And, Lou, we learned a few things today, and there's so much more to learn. And Rosemary has been a terrific guest. I'm glad she was with us certainly was, and um, we can't learn enough, let's put it that way, because there's all kinds of things that are not not being communicated to us by our uh, illustrious uh, politicians and so on, so I won't beat them up, but I do want to bring out the point that we do have other shows, and we'd like to remind our listeners to see our other podcast shows. Uh, this one, of course, is Manufacturing Talk Radio. We have uh, WAM podcast, which is uh, women and manufacturing and business. We have uh, a couple that are in process. We have uh, Manufacturing Matters with uh, Cliff Waldman. And uh, you just have to go to our website, uh, www.mfgtalkradio.com, and uh, you can see all, all of our goodies and all the people that we've had. We've actually done about 400 shows now in uh, a little less than uh, five five years. And um, so tune in, and uh, if anyone has any ideas, suggestions, or would like to be a guest on the show, tell us what your expertise is, and we'd love to have you. Sam? Thanks for reminding everyone of that, Lou. Yes, we would love to have them on every episode and 
including uh, future episodes and listen to past episodes. For But thank you for being on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.